Shalom, and thank you for listening to sermons from Tikvot Israel, a Messianic synagogue in the heart of Richmond, Virginia. Listening to the podcast is great, but if you want the full experience, please join us Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for our worship service. We are located at the corner of Boulevard and Grove, across from the Art Museum. For more information, you can visit our website at tikvotisrael.com. There, you can support the ministry, learn more about Messianic Judaism, and contact us with any questions or comments. May Hashem bless you through the hearing of His Word. Uh, so, uh, I didn't actually uh, plan this out with, uh, with anybody, uh, but if, uh, Jason Linus is... Uh, could you stand up real quick? He is uh, wearing a, a really cool tie. Can anyone tell me what's, what's on that tie? Star Wars. And who's on, who, who from Star Wars is actually on that? Looks like... Well, that, that's... Spoiler alert. That's what I was going to talk about. Now, you, Oh, man. Okay, so it's Darth Vader on there. Okay. Very good. All right. So, in the film, The Empire Strikes Back, there's that iconic line. I don't know if you've uh, heard of it. Well, I should say spoiler alert for those who haven't seen the film yet. Um, but there's a big reveal... It comes when Darth Vader says to Luke, Yes. You got to do the breathing first, though. Actually, he says, No, I am your father. Did anybody know that? It's actually mis. Anyway, that's not that important. So then we say, Whoa, right? Because Luke, the guy he thought who had killed his father, was his father, right? And I'm sure it's not that amazing a reveal to us now, okay? But at the time, it was, right? There was actually a different line recorded with the crew around. So they, they were very secretive about it. Um, when everyone is around, they, they recorded a different line. And then they went back later with just the two actors and George Lucas. And uh, they said that iconic line. Um, and uh, they must have wanted to keep it secret because they wanted it to have maximum impact, right? They wanted it to be like a, like a wham, right? Can you say that? Wham. wham. Wow, this changes everything, right? And uh, so that reminds me of the Gospel of John, yeah? Because in that Gospel, Yeshua gets a bunch of these wham lines in, right? Where the original hearers must have gone, whoa. This changes everything, okay? And specifically, a lot of them, I noticed, occur around the Feast of Pesach, Passover. Yes, that's convenient. So today, um, we're going to talk about three different Pesachs, three different, well, let's try it this way, three different Passovers, which are mentioned in the Gospel of John, Right, which makes sense. If Yeshua's ministry was about three years, there would probably be about three different Passovers in it. Okay, so this is the tale of three Passovers. And my alternate uh, title for this sermon is Wham! Okay, so you can pick whichever one you think is best. All right, so the first Passover occurs uh, early. It's in John chapter 2, verses 13 through 22. So let's jump right in and see what it's talking about. It was almost time for the festival of Passover. 
Pesach in Yehuda. So Yeshua went up to Jerusalem, right? Because it's a pilgrimage festival. In the temple grounds, he found those who were selling cattle, sheep, and pigeons, and others who were sitting at tables exchanging money. He made a whip from cords and drove them all out of the temple grounds, the sheep and cattle as well. He knocked over the money changers' tables, scattering their coins, and to the pigeon sellers, he said, get these things out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? His Talmidim, or his students, later recalled that the Tanakh says, zeal for your house will devour me. So the Judeans confronted him by asking him, what miraculous sign can you show to prove you have the right to do all of this? And Yeshua answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up again. Can we say, wham? Yeah. So the Judeans said, it took 46 years to build up this temple, and you're going to raise it up in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. Therefore, when he was raised from the dead, his Talmidim remembered that he had said this, and they trusted in the Tanakh, that is, the Hebrew Scriptures, and in what Yeshua had said. Okay? So, just for some context, uh, in this first Passover, uh, why does he overturn the tables? What's going on there? Well, Yeshua is establishing justice in the Holy Temple. Thank you, uh, Robert. Okay? Remember, Passover was a pilgrimage festival, so people would come from far away, right, to visit the temple and to make sacrifices. Not just the Passover lamb, but other sacrifices as well. So essentially, they had to change their coins to pay the temple tax, and they also had to buy animals for sacrifices, because you can't really lug, you know, it's hard to get a, a really good pigeon, you know, in the diaspora, right? So you have to... You don't want to carry all those animals. You want to buy them once you get there. But the problem is that these money changers and the sellers, right, they were taking advantage of this monopoly. They had a monopoly, right? You had to go to them, and they were profiting greatly, and they were cheating people over something that was extremely holy. So this was bad, bad news, okay? But then the focus shifts in the narrative to the temple. And Yeshua gives the wham line, right, that I said, destroy this temple, and in three days, what's he going to do? Raise it up again. Although they didn't realize it, he was referring to his own body as the temple. Why is that? Well, it's because the temple, remember, was the center of God's holy presence, and that is best represented in Yeshua himself. This is a radical, this is kind of a wham idea, Right? But even more surprising is he was talking about resurrection as a fulfillment of Passover. Okay? But they didn't quite get it right away. They didn't get the impact of the wham until later. It was a, like a wham on delay. Right? They didn't think like, the thought about it, I'm like, oh, that was a good line, right? They didn't understand, perhaps, that resurrection is a crucial part of God's narrative that it runs through the Torah, through the Exodus story, and right into Yeshua's story. But make no mistake, this is no mere prophet 
Yeshua references his own resurrection, that his own body would be raised in three days. And his students remembered that he had said this later, and they trusted in the Tanakh, they trusted in the Torah, and they trusted in what Yeshua had said. So therefore, the resurrection of the Messiah and the idea of resurrection, it must be in the Hebrew Scripture somewhere, right? Right? Because he's fulfilling that. So it it might need to be searched out. But there are hints of it in, or which is called a remez, a hint, in, in in the Scriptures. Would you like to take a look at a few of these? All right. Okay, so, sure, we say. Okay, so this is from Psalm 16. This is written by King David. And verses 9 through 11 read like this. So my heart is glad, my glory rejoices, and my body too rests in safety. For you will not abandon me to Sheol. You will not let your faithful one see the abyss. You will make, you make me know the path of life. In your presence is unbounded joy. In your right hand, eternal delight. Okay? So scholars have understood this to be about both David and about the Messiah from David's line. There are a bunch of scattered hints of the Messiah all over the Psalms, especially in David's, I think because David himself was a hint. He was a remez of the Messiah. Remember, the Messiah was supposed to be a king like David. So what's happening in this psalm? David is trusting his very body to God that will not go down into the grave, into death, but it will be raised up to be with God, okay? And both Paul and Peter, in two separate writings in the New Covenant, they apply these verses to the resurrection of the Messiah because of the hint in the words. It says, your faithful one. In Hebrew, that's chasid cha. So the embodiment of God's covenantal chesed, right? His loving kindness, God will restore and preserve. Other versions read, you will not allow your Holy One to see decay, right? And supporting this messianic idea is the idea that King David, if we think about it, what happened to him? He was buried, right? This did happen to him. He was, he did go into the grave. But, so we understand that he, there was, that must mean that there's a hint here, right? That this has to be about the Messiah in some way, okay? So at the very least, we understand King David has the hope of resurrection, which interpreters, including the inspired authors of the New Testament, they apply to the Messiah. Okay, are we, are we convinced yet, or do you want to see another hint? Another hint? Okay. So another hint is, uh, this is from Hosea. I got a million of them, okay? Well, I don't want to take all day, but I, I, uh, I, there's a lot. So this is from Hosea 6, verses 1 and 2. Uh, And it says, Come, let us return to Adonai, for he is torn, and he will heal us. He has struck, and he will bind our wounds. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up, and we will live in his presence. Right? Yeshua fulfilled this remez, this hint, by being raised on the third day. Right? And there are many others. There's a, a Isaiah 53 talks about, uh, it talks about the suffering servant, right? And it says that 
he will be assigned a grave with the wicked, but then he, God will somehow prolong his life, right? And so how can they both be true except that there be resurrection in the text, okay? So let's, uh, keeping that in mind, are we convinced yet that this idea is in there? Can I go back? Okay, so let's look at the wham line again. Let's summarize what we've seen so far. Yeshua brings a teaching about justice and the kingdom of God. Remember, he overturns the tables. And then he makes a remarkable statement that he himself is the fulfillment of that kingdom. In other words, Yeshua says, the holy temple is supposed to be free from bribery and free from exploiting the poor. And by the way, I am the temple. Wham! Right? And the fullness of God's presence. Wham! Which I will show by rising from the dead. Wham indeed. Right? So keeping this in mind, let's look at the next Passover passage in John and see if we can find any patterns here. This is uh, chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Sometime later, Yeshua went over to the far side of Lake Kinneret, that is Lake Tiberias, and a large crowd followed him because they had seen the miracles he had performed on the sick. Yeshua went up into the hills and sat down there with his Talmidim, his students. Now the Judean festival of Pesach was coming up. So when Yeshua looked up and saw that a large crowd was approaching, he said to Philip, where will we be able to buy bread so that these people can eat? You know, Passover was coming up. Perhaps there was a shortage of bread because, you know, people were thinking, well, we don't need bread right now because we're going to be making matzah. So maybe there was a shortage. I don't know. Okay. So uh, where are we going to buy bread? Now, Yeshua said this to test Philip, for Yeshua himself knew what he was about to do. Philip answered, half a year's wages wouldn't buy enough bread for them. Each one would only get a bite. Just a, a bissel. Is that, is that the right he? A uh, Yiddish word? Abyssal? Yeah? Okay. One of the Talmudim, Andrew, the brother of Shimon Kepha, said to him, well, there's a young fellow here who has five loaves of barley bread and two fish, but how far will they go among so many? Yeshua said, have the people sit down. There was a lot of grass there, so they sat down. The number of men was about 5,000. Then Yeshua took the loaves of bread, and after making a barucha, gave to all who were sitting there, and likewise with the fish, as much as they wanted. After they had eaten their fill, he told his Talmudim, gather the leftover pieces so that nothing gets wasted. They gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. Right? So what's happening here? There's a supernatural provision of food for the hungry. Right? But no extra shocking statements yet. Sometimes you have to wait for it, right? Okay, so the next day, the crowd is amazed because of the miracle of bread. Remember, they're following him because he's doing these signs. So Yeshua is trying to bring them out of looking for the physical bread and evidence of a sign and to be more looking for the spiritual food, for heavenly bread. So the crowd is like, Oh, yeah, we had, uh, we had bread from heaven because our ancestors ate manna in the desert. And Yeshua says, no, I'm still not talking about physical bread, but spiritual bread from heaven. 
And the crowd says, oh, okay, yes, we will have some of this spiritual bread. Please give it to us. And uh, thinking perhaps that Yeshua might make the manna come down again, right, like it did before. And Yeshua says, I am the bread of life. Can we say it? Wham. Yeah, that's wham, okay? He says, I am the bread of life. And there are some more whams. He says that we're supposed to eat this bread, that is his body, and we are to drink this wine, that is his blood. What is going on here? All right, well, let's look at the whole picture. Yeshua is demonstrating, again, one of the principles of the kingdom of God, specifically associated with Passover, that is his provision and his love. All right, remember, he provides miraculously the bread for the hungry people. Then he explains how he fulfills that principle again with his very body, just like before. In the first Passover, Yeshua is the temple, which he will show through resurrection. Here in the second Passover, Yeshua is the bread of heaven, which he will show by giving up his own life. If Yeshua was just uh, a mere prophet, then we would probably only have the first part of these. We wouldn't have these wham statements, right? We would have uh, righteousness in the temple. He would say, you know, this is wrong. You need to not be exploiting the poor. Or he might just provide bread for the hungry if he was just a prophet, okay? He would be a, a good teacher. He would be bringing out the ethic of Passover, but that's it. But as the Messiah, Yeshua transcends this ethic. He embodies this ethic, right, through his own death and resurrection. And then by asking us to eat his body and drink his blood, Yeshua is pointing to something because there's another Passover coming. There's a third Passover in John. And he connects his death and resurrection to the Passover story, the redemption coming out of Egypt into freedom. And followers of Yeshua have taken this ritual instituted by Yeshua for almost 2,000 years. This is what happens when we take the bread and the wine of the Lord's Supper. We are making this Passover connection, and we're proclaiming that Yeshua is the Lamb of God in the Passover story, right? But why does Yeshua do this during Passover? Why do we get these wham statements then? It's because he's fulfilling and transforming what Passover is really about. Yes, Passover is about being delivered from slavery in Egypt, but it's so much more than that. Passover doesn't just point to the Messiah. Yeshua, the Messiah, is the Pesach. He is the Passover. He is the Lamb of God who was slain. He is the deliverance of Passover. He is the matzah, the bread of life. His death and resurrection bring a Passover redemption to all who trust in him. Passover is not just about deliverance from Egypt for the nation of Israel, but it is about new life in Messiah, resurrection life, eating the bread of life and drinking the wine. His body and his blood are the holiest, the fullest Pesach sacrifice there ever was. And the pain and the anguish that he went through on the third Passover, that is the fullness of God's redemptive love in the Passover. 
And this brings us to look at the third Passover in the Gospel of John. And well, that one, that one is the big kahuna, all right? Why do I say that? This is the last Passover of Yeshua's ministry on earth. And it starts talking about it from chapter 13 until the end, chapter 21. That is the last week of Yeshua's life, which all coincides with the Feast of Passover. That is a whopping 43% of the gospel, for those of you who did not bring your calculator to the shul today. All right, so we have three years of ministry, and nearly half of the Gospel of John is only about this one week at the end, right? Why is that? There must be something important there. It coincides, again, with the largest redemption act in the history of Israel, the Exodus, with the largest redemption act in the history of the world, which is what Yeshua did on the tree during the third Passover. And you guessed it. This section is filled with some whams, some whams, some lines, even some wham actions. And we're going to go, whoa. Okay, so let's check out chapter 13. It was just before the festival of Pesach. And Yeshua knew that the time had come for him to pass from this world to the Father. Having loved his own people in the world, he loved them to the end. They were at supper... And the adversary had already put the desire to betray him into the heart of Yehuda ben Shimon from Kriot. Yeshua was aware that the father had put everything in his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he rose from the table, removed his outer garments, and wrapped a towel around his waist. Then he poured some water into a basin and began to wash the feet of his Talmudim and wipe them off with a towel wrapped around him. Okay, maybe some of us are, are familiar with this story, uh, just like many of us know by now that Darth Vader is Luke's father, right? But remember, at the time, to the Talmudim, this would have been shocking, right? This was their teacher. This is the one who's the Lamb of God, the bread of life, the promised Messiah. And what is he doing? He's stooping down and washing the feet of his own students, including, it says, the one he knew would betray him, the one he knew would sell him to die. He washed Judas's feet as well, right? This is the divine reversal kingdom in action. He's revealing something else about Passover, and that is restorative justice and love. God took Israel out of Egypt to give them this ethic. This is the point of the Passover. In Moses' last sermon in Deuteronomy 10, verses 12 through 19, he ties in God's love for Israel with a radical ethic of following Torah and humbling yourself, right? Like washing the feet of your students, humbling yourself before God and allowing God's rescuing love to define them, right? And this is what Moses says. So now, Israel, all that Adonai your God asks from you is to fear Adonai your God, follow all his ways, love him, and serve Adonai your God with all your heart and all your being to obey for your own good the mitzvot and regulations of Adonai which I'm giving you today. See the sky, the heaven beyond the sky, the earth and everything on it, 
all belong to Adonai, your God. Only Adonai took enough pleasure in your ancestors to love them and choose their descendants after them, that's yourselves, above all people as he does today. Therefore, circumcise the foreskin of your heart and don't be stiff-necked any longer. For Adonai, your God, is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, mighty, and awesome God who has no favorites and accepts no bribes. He secures justice for the orphan and the widow. He loves the foreigner, giving him food and clothing. And we're thinking about all the actions that Yeshua did during Passover, right? He provides food for the hungry. He brings justice for the orphan and the widow. He loves the foreigner. Therefore, you are to love the foreigner since you were foreigners in the land of Egypt. Do we see how Yeshua embodies this ethic with his radical actions, like washing the feet of his students. And just after washing his students' feet, which is a wham action, we get a wham line. But we might not recognize it as a wham line. This is what Yeshua says. I'm giving you a new command, that you keep on loving each other. In the same way that I have loved you, you are to keep on loving each other. Everyone will know that you are my Talmudim by the fact that you have love for each other. Dr. David Stern, who translated the complete uh, Jewish Bible, and he writes this in the New Testament commentary about this verse. Quote, I personally bear witness to the truth of this statement. I became willing to investigate the truth claims about the New Testament not because I was overwhelmed by irrefutable arguments, but because I met believers whose love for each other went beyond what I had experienced. It was not even their love toward me which impressed me, although they treated me well, but their self-sacrificing and cheerful willingness to give themselves fully for each other without any trace of self-serving motivation. This is what those who claim to be trusting Yeshua are called to do. This is what we're called to do. And can expect God's power to enable them to do. God can be counted on to fulfill his promise that the world will recognize such people as true disciples of Yeshua, unquote. So how is this a new commandment, right? Yeshua says this is a new commandment. God's Torah has already told us to love our neighbor as ourself. But this is a new command because he says to love others with the love that he loves us, the love of Yeshua. That is God's love flowing through us to others. What is this love like? It's the love expressed in Passover and fulfilled in Yeshua. It's love that feeds the hungry, love that stands for righteousness, love that is self-sacrificing, love that is full of hope, and resurrection power. Yeshua, the Passover lamb, has given us his life, that we can have life. On the third Passover in John, Yeshua died and then rose again, that we might know love, that we might know redemption and the hope of resurrection. That is the story of Passover as fulfilled by Yeshua. And so, may this be a Passover of love and redemption 
and resurrection life for you. Amen.